Dear Heavenly Father, what a beautiful time of year it is, Father. Things coming to life again. Springtime, Lord. You tell us in your word that as long as there are the seasons, we will know you are faithful to your promises. That the world itself is constructed, Lord, in such a way that it reminds us of how you are steadfast and faithful. How you have put things in place for a purpose and they will remain there as long as you see necessary to your plan. And even the fact that things come back from the dead, as it were, Father, at this time of year, is such a great reminder, such a great picture of the work that only you can do. You are a God of resurrection. You are a God of taking dead things and bringing them back to life. We thank you, Father, that by faith you've given us each the promise of that resurrection, the hope of eternal life, the possibility, Father, that we will rise again in new bodies and that we will live forever with you. That's the message you've given us in your scripture, Father. That's the truth you've made possible through the spirit working in us and by the faith that we have in Christ. And yet, Father, there is still so much more for us to learn, things you've asked us to do while we wait for that day of our resurrection, opportunities you give us to serve you. And in each of these opportunities you give us, Father, wherever they come in our day and our week, you've gifted us so that we'd have the skill, we'd have the abilities necessary to serve you in those things. Not in our own power, but in the power of the Spirit. And then on top of all of that, Father, you've given us your word in which you explain to us the basics of these things so that we might know how to serve you properly. And that's where we are this morning, Lord. I pray as we open your word and as we consider all that you've taught us through Paul, that we would put these things to use. How much better is it, Lord, that we hear and do, not merely that we hear. We pray the Spirit would speak, that he would teach. That he would guide our hearts, he would convict us. That where we resist the truth, he would open the the floodgates of conviction and show us the truth so we cannot avoid it. And where we are living in the truth but not living up to it, I ask, Father, that you give us the courage to do better. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our study of spiritual gifts in this letter has been building to this moment, to this chapter. And what we've done so far, Paul's been teaching about gifts through chapters 12 and 13 and And now into 14. And what we've learned is how they arrive, when they arrive, why they arrive, and why they must one day cease. And as well, Paul has cautioned the church against misusing the gifts, against misunderstanding their purposes. He's also encouraged the church to seek for greater gifts so that the body might enjoy the most of God's love. But now in chapter 14, Paul will address some very specific errors that this church, the church in Corinth, has been making in their understanding and in their use of their spiritual gifts. And in particular, like we said last week, this church has developed an unhealthy fascination with one gift more than the rest, with the gift of speaking in tongues. I have to imagine they probably saw the gift at work for the first time in Paul himself. Paul will mention that in this chapter. And as new believers, they may have seen it taking place in the early beginnings of the church in some cases, as was the case in the time of Acts. But whenever they saw it, it's apparent that it caught their attention. And then later, after Paul left town, some, it appears, began teaching that this particular spiritual gift was the most important one that a believer could obtain and that others should wish for it as well and seek to obtain it. And eventually, the whole church becomes involved in an inappropriate and counterfeit version of this gift, hoping that they could create in their flesh what God had not chosen to do for them in the spirit. 
And Paul has heard of these problems. We saw that earlier in this letter. This whole letter is written as a response to what he's heard from the delegation that came to him. And, of course, what he heard in part was of this incorrect use of spiritual gifts. And so now, since chapter 12, he's been writing a discourse on these matters to correct this behavior. And now in chapter 14, he's ready to hit the nail on the head, so to speak. He's ready to go to the heart of the question of what they're doing and right all of the wrongs that he's heard about. Last week, we introduced this chapter at the very beginning. We've only covered four verses of it so far. And in that first beginning of this chapter, the very introduction, we saw Paul make a comparison between the most important gift available within the body of Christ, that is prophecy, with the one that is least important on that list, that is the gift of tongues. Remember, we said these are important as measured by their ability to edify, how they work within the body of Christ to demonstrate God's love and edify the body. And in the list that Paul gave in chapter 12, the list of gifts, he rank ordered them. And the one that was at the top of the list was the apostolic gift. And then the one below that was the prophetic gift, the gift of prophecy. Well, the apostolic gift is higher than prophecy, and yet here at the beginning of this chapter, Paul is comparing prophecy with the gift of tongues. And the reason is because the most important gift available to the believers in Corinth in Paul's absence was prophecy. There was no apostle in Corinth when Paul left, and so there was no apostolic gift present. So if they were to seek for the most important, it was the gift of prophecy. And then he said, on the other hand, that they were concerning themselves with the least important gift, that is the one of the gift of tongues. Let's pick up there again, verses 4 through 5 to start, and see where Paul takes this discussion. In verse 4, he says, One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. Well, Paul supports his contention that prophecy is a greater gift than the gift of tongues, once again on the basis of its ability to edify the church. The gift of tongues, Paul says, works to yield edification in only one individual, and that is the one who speaks. And the reason we understand that to be true is from what we learned last week, that not even the one who speaks in a foreign language knows the language that they're speaking. That's the essence of the miracle. So when someone has the gift of tongues, they are speaking in a foreign language, a real human language, but one they do not know. So even as the words come out of their mouth, their ear does not recognize what they just said. And that gift, because of its nature, only has the opportunity to edify that one individual and then only in a limited way because there's no communication taking place, not even to themselves and certainly not to the rest of the congregation, presuming that nobody understands that particular language. The speaker, Paul says, is edified, but no one else. How is someone edified to hear themselves speaking a language they don't understand? Well, in a spiritual sense, there's an encouragement merely in the recognition that God is working in you that God is present, that he has supernatural power and that it's being manifested through you. Even if that's the extent of it, that is a measure of edification. Gordon Fee once commented on this truth of spiritual edification without intellectual engagement. He said, contrary to the opinion of many, spiritual edification can take place in ways other than through the cortex of the brain. Paul believed in an immediate communing with God by means of the spirit that bypassed the mind. But 
in the congregation, Paul will only have what can be communicated to other believers through their minds. Gordon Fee is referencing something we're going to look at a little later in this chapter, in which Paul says that the lack of communicative edification, the fact that speaking in tongues does not transfer edification from me to someone else, means that it should not be practiced in the congregation, for it has no place in that moment, apart from one exception, which Paul will raise in a minute. But back to where we are so far, Paul has said that the gift of tongues brings edification to one person at a spiritual level, but it lacks the ability to transfer edification to others. But then he contrasts that with the highest order gift, the gift of prophecy. When you look at the gift of prophecy, it reaches many ears with a powerful spiritual impact, spiritual knowledge, spiritual insight, so that not only is the speaker edified by the fact that they can be useful to the body of Christ, but so is the body edified by what is given to them through the communication of the prophecy. So the church is called by Paul to seek after those who can bless them to the greatest possible extent within the congregation, prophecy being at the top of that list. And then he says, you would only seek after speaking in tongues on the individual level in a private way. In fact, he says the church should never trade the opportunity to be edified by someone with the gift of prophecy for something lesser like gift of tongues. It's a fool's bargain. It's like trading a $20 bill for a 50 cent piece. Why would you do it? Paul says there's no reason to do it. In verse 5, he says he wishes that they could all speak in tongues. Now, let's understand what he's saying here. Paul says he wishes. Now, the very fact that he uses the word wish, he wishes that everyone in the church could speak in tongues. The fact that he uses that phrase means not everyone spoke in tongues. Self-evidently, if everyone in the church was speaking in tongues, he wouldn't have said, I wish you would speak in tongues. He would have said, since you speak in tongues or because you can speak in tongues. No, he doesn't say that. He says, I wish that you could speak in tongues. Self-evidently, not everyone possessed the gift which is consistent, by the way, with what Paul said earlier in the book. Earlier in chapter 12, he said, we only possess the gifts God assigns to us. We cannot lobby for them. We do not sign up for them. We don't learn them. It's a gift. And it comes as a matter of God's assignment. We also learn that Paul says God has a purpose in assigning a diversity of gifts. There's a reason why he doesn't give us all the same gift, because the strength of the body is found in the diversity of the gifts. If we all had every gift, we wouldn't need each other. So Paul says, I wish you had the gift. Why does he say that? Why does he say to the body, I wish that you could all have this thing that you have come to desire? Well, he's speaking to the church like a father speaking to a child who has an unrealistic Christmas wish list. You've probably been in these situations, I'm sure, from time to time. Son, I wish you could have that dinosaur for Christmas. Or daughter, I wish you could have that pony. That's the way you need to hear what Paul's saying in that verse. I wish that you could have tongues. He's sympathetic for the desire, but he's acknowledging they have an unrealistic and an immature desire that you cannot meet. You cannot satisfy this desire, though I wish you could for your own sake. And I want you to consider how he finishes that thought. He says his greater desire for them would be that they could all prophesy. If I had a magic wand and I could swing it over the church and I could give you all exactly what you want, I wouldn't give you the gift of tongues in the first place. If I have the choice to give you a gift, I'm going to give you the best gift. I wouldn't give you the least. 
His point to the church is you've got an unrealistic expectation and your priorities are totally messed up. Remember last week we covered what the gift of tongues is. I've summarized it here a minute ago earlier, that it's about human beings speaking human languages, not made up things, but real language, Chinese, Japanese, Arabic, Navajo. It doesn't matter. It's real human language, but it's just one you don't know. That's the gift of tongues. As we covered last week, you have that gift. And now we hear of another one, the gift of interpretation. It's the ability to understand a foreign language that you cannot speak. It's the exact inverse of the other. To give you a simple example, I don't know Japanese. I used this example last week. I don't know Japanese. If I started speaking it, I'm speaking in a tongue. If you knew Japanese, if you were a Japanese-speaking person, you'd understand it just fine because it doesn't depend on a gift of interpretation. If you already know it, you would just hear it. We saw the example out of Acts chapter 2 where that happened in the early church. On the other hand, if you do not know how to speak Japanese either, but when I speak it, you suddenly understand it, you have the gift of interpretation. You couldn't repeat what I just said, but you know what it meant. That's the gift as well. It shows that it's supernatural. Without the gift of interpretation present, Paul says, the gift of tongues loses any chance it might have had to edify someone else. Why? Well, for the simple reason that there's no communication taking place. And if I don't know what you said, I can't gain any benefit out of it. So Paul says, if you find the possibility in the room for edification through interpretation, well, then speaking in tongues might have value. But think about what it just became. What did the gift of tongues effectively become if the gift of interpretation is mated with it? It just became the gift of prophecy. It just became the gift of speaking truth to somebody out of God's will. Now, I'm not calling it the gift of prophecy. What I'm pointing out, though, is it is made useful through the communication process. It doesn't have that use all in its own. Finally, I want you to notice at the end of verse 5, Paul says the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. And he's reiterating this priority of prophecy over other gifts and especially over tongues. The basis for it is measured in the ability to edify. So gifts are to be used in the body of Christ in a disciplined way to ensure edification by placing the highest priority on the greatest value gifts. And yet at the same time, not to the exclusion of any gift. Not to the point that we say anyone is without value, but to just keep things in their proper place and in their proper perspective. Now, that's how Paul sets up this whole chapter. And after that first set of rules, that introduction and so on, let us look at how Paul begins to ascribe for gatherings to work. How does he say we are to use the gifts in the gathering? He says this now, verse 6. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, even flute or harp in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in their tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, How will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Paul begins with this hypothetical situation of a church gathering in which the gift of tongues is being put to use, and he uses himself as the example. 
Paul says, what if Paul visited Oak Hill Bible Church one Sunday? And he comes with the gift of tongues, which we know Paul had, according to his own testimony. He asks, how can I be profitable to that congregation? How can I contribute to the edification of those in that room? Paul, when he says profit, he means spiritually. How can I benefit the church spiritually? He says, that spiritual benefit depends on my ability to show up with something meaningful for the rest of you. He says, I have to come with a a revelation, or I have to come with knowledge of some kind, or prophecy, or teaching. I have to bring something into the room that I leave you with that changes how you look at the world spiritually, or what good have I done for you? By the way, this is a general rule for all of us. This is actually a very nice way to consider your part in every congregation. You don't come to take and nothing more. You come to take and give. And I'm not speaking financially. I'm talking about spiritually. We come into this building to leave something with at least someone, if not a large group of people, that changes them spiritually. It can be nothing more in some cases than just encouraging words. It can be a prayer in the corner of the room with someone who needed it. It can be whatever God gives you. The point is, if your mind isn't directed at that outcome, you're probably a lot less likely to do it. If your thinking is, I'm just going to show up, see what happens, and go home, most weeks, that's probably what you'll do. The shame of it is, you've missed out. You've missed out on the opportunity to be a contributor to the body of Christ in a way God has programmed you to do and gifted you for that purpose and called you here with that expectation. And what a shame to leave that on the table, to not take advantage of that opportunity. Paul says, if I come to you with gift X, and in his case he uses the example speaking in tongues, I've still got to figure out a way to take that gift and turn it into something that I leave you with, or I've done nothing good with it. It's got to transfer in some way. Paul says he has to share something. And in the case of these speaking gifts, if we're talking about gifts of utterance, it's got to be leaving you with something understandable. If I teach in such a way that you don't get what I'm saying, then even my attempt fell on deaf ears. It did nothing. I have to be conscious of whether I'm communicating effectively. So Paul draws upon that very idea to explain the purpose of the gathering itself. The church gathers for the reason that a basketball team practices on a court. Basketball players can practice by themselves to a degree. They can go out by themselves and shoot hoops. They can dribble around on the court. They can run wind sprints. There's things you could do to become a better basketball player that don't revolve around anyone else. But that reaches a limit. And if at the end of it all you're trying to put those skills to use in a game, you can't do that effectively without at least having some time on a court with the rest of the players on the team working together in practice. That's the church. Christians can spend individual opportunity at any time to develop their prayer life, their study life, other disciplines of the faith. We all have those individual opportunities, but none of those things replace what you get in the gathering. This is your practice. This is your team. This is our court. We can't be as effective as a team in terms of our functions as Christians unless we do this well, too. And this is not a spectator sport, right? Everybody's got a role. Paul says, I come to give my gift for the purpose of someone else benefiting from my presence. But what if at the basketball team they came to practice and each sat at some corner of the gym by themselves and did their own thing? That, in a sense, is what the gift of tongues is like if it were practiced in mass in a church. Assuming it's even possible to have that many people in one place with the same gift, if they all come and do that, no one communicates anything to anyone. No one knows what anyone else is saying. It's like a room full of basketball players all shooting free throws by themselves. Yet we came together to practice as a team, 
to help each other. That gift doesn't do that on its own. And Paul says, because of that, we have to restrict its presence in the body to the appropriate degree of its purpose. And without interpretation, it can't take part in the practice. Paul uses his own analogies. He uses musical instruments. He says, musical instruments, even an object as lifeless as a musical instrument, plays a part in benefiting us, but only if it's used in harmony with others. If they're to play their own line in the middle of an orchestra, something on their own that has nothing to do with what the orchestra is doing, it's just discord at that point. They have to play something in line with others in order for it to be in harmony. And then he uses the example of a wartime bugle, the call to the troops that the bugler would play. You know, in times when before they had radios and, and other forms of communication, the way you moved a large force on the battlefield was through the sound of a bugle. Bugle calls would instruct them when to move forward, when to stop, when to retreat, which way to go. But here again, if the bugler just did whatever they wanted to do with the bugle, no one understands it, no one would respond. Paul says you have to do something that makes sense. All of these examples make the same point. Our purpose is to influence someone else in a healthy way, not to do our own thing by ourselves. In verse 9, Paul says that unless the speech we utter in the gathering is clear, no one will understand it. And he says to not be understandable in the gathering is equivalent to speaking into the air. What he's doing is he's playing on the concept of how sound travels. I say something and it vibrates the air here. That vibration moves through the air and it eventually hits your ear and it resonates in your ear and your brain makes sense of it. If I speak in such a way that you can't understand me, my sound went just into the air, so to speak, and it never landed on any ears. It never did any good in your brain. Paul says, if we speak things no one understands, we might as well be speaking by ourselves because it's just going into the air. It's going nowhere to do anything good. Paul's alluding to two different kinds of problems. First, to a false form of this spiritual gift, a counterfeit version of this gift that can show up in some situations where you find so much interest in speaking in tongues, particularly as you see it here in the Corinthian church, you're also going to find peer pressure among those in that body to acquire this gift. And as, of course, we've already said, spiritual gifts cannot be acquired Your wishing for it will not make it so. Your seeking after it will not produce it. It's a gift. God assigns it. You get what you get. Nevertheless, if the pressure is great enough, if it is considered important enough, if it is made a litmus test for your participation in the congregation, or, heaven forbid, it's made a litmus test for you being considered Christian, Well, the pressure can be so great that you will seek for it in whatever way you can. For the approval of the congregation, for the acceptance of that group, you will begin to do whatever you need to do in order to be accepted. And counterfeiting a speaking gift is both impossible and possible. On the one hand, it's impossible to fake any spiritual gift, period. You cannot do what God has not enabled you to do. If a spiritual gift from God could be obtained through works, through something our flesh could accomplish, then what would we be saying about a spiritual gift in the first place? It would lose its significance if it was within the ability of man to obtain something that's supposed to be from God. It would just be a man-made work. So, on the one hand, it's literally impossible for someone to fake speaking in tongues. If you don't know how to speak Japanese, you're not going to do it just because you want to. You cannot fake that. I cannot fake a real human language I don't know, period. 
my kids both know a little Spanish, and I know a little, but not very much. But I always tell them I know more than they do. And they they like, Dad, you don't know Spanish. I'm like, what do you mean I don't know Spanish? Doggo, cat-o, house-o. I can't fake it. Not to someone who knows the language. It's immediately apparent I don't have a clue how to speak Spanish, right? On the other hand, if I don't realize that speaking in tongues means speaking in a real human language, if I've never been taught that, if no one's ever bothered to explain that that's what the word tongues actually means in Greek, then I'm susceptible to being fooled by someone who teaches me that unintelligible babbling of monosyllabic sounds is speaking in tongues. I'm susceptible to seeing that as speaking in tongues, not realizing that that is not tongues at all. That real speaking in tongues looks entirely different. I've never seen the real thing. All I know is what I've been taught. I've been exposed to it. I've been told it's important. I've been told I have to have it. I've been made to think if I don't have it, I'm missing something. And then I notice everybody's saying and doing something very similar. And I think to myself, well, I could probably do it if I had to. And people tell me, you have to. You can do it. And I'm not making fun of these people. Don't hear me the wrong way. I'm actually pitying the way that they've been taken advantage of. You find people who will mimic sounds they've been taught to make under the impression that what they are doing is a spiritual gift. Why are they doing this? Well, largely because they're ignorant of what Scripture has taught. It is a particularly insidious ignorance because it contributes to an unhealthy practice of gifts and a demoralizing experience in the body of Christ, a dividing of the body of Christ, of a have versus a have not. It's also quite oppressive to anyone who would go to Scripture and seek to correct it. This is the problem of getting our theology from the practice of others rather than from the pages of the Bible. So on the one hand, it's impossible to fake this gift, but on the other hand, it's possible to fake something that you think is this gift. And in so doing, create something that's not a gift at all. That's what had happened or was beginning to happen in the church in Corinth. Paul alludes to that in the text. Look in verse 10. In verse 10, he reminds the church that there are many kinds of human language in the world. Yes, there are many varieties, but look what he then says. He says, every human language possesses meaning, Paul says. He's correcting them on this concept of what is a tongue. A tongue is a human language. It has the purpose of communicating thought, which means it must possess structure. It must possess syntax. It must possess vocabulary. It is not the same three sounds repeated over and over in a mantra. If those things are not present, it's not a tongue. And as a result, we know it's not the gift. There is no tongue that consists of nothing but nonsense babbling. It's not a mysterious tongue. It's not some lost tongue. It's not an angelic tongue. It is babbling, and we all know it when we hear it. So the first situation he's addressing are those in the church who have misunderstood the gift and are mimicking it in a false way. The second concern Paul has is for those who do have the gift of tongues, but they are not using it in an appropriate way to the inherent limitations of the gift. By its nature, it has certain limitations associated with it. Because if no one can understand what's being said, it cannot edify. And if it's not in a position to edify, it needs to be silent in the body. We don't have time here for non-edifying behavior. We don't have enough opportunity to let everyone have a turn at doing whatever they like if it doesn't have the ability or the opportunity to edify. That's not why we gather. We gather for edification. Notice in verse 11, Paul alludes to this second situation. He says that when someone speaks to me in a language I can't understand, 
Now, he's not talking here about a fake language. He says, when I talk to you in a language you don't know, then you are like a barbarian to me and vice versa. The word barbarian in Greek literally means someone who does not speak Greek. And they didn't use it like a slur. We use the word today like we're trying to talk down to someone. It's pejorative today. But it wasn't pejorative in Paul's day. He's not insulting him. We would say what? Non-English speaking. That's all he means. He's simply stating, if I talk to you in Greek and you don't know Greek, you're a barbarian to me and I'm a barbarian to you. We're not communicating. So the second problem with the gift of tongues is, even when it does exist, if it's used without an interpreter, there's no value in it. Silence it. Because we're wasting time until I can understand you. So to conclude, Paul says in verse 12, since this church is zealous to possess and use their spiritual gifts, he doesn't want to quench that zealousness. That's fine. It's just misplaced. He wants to direct it. He wants to guide it to where it can be useful in the body. He says, make your goal to see the greatest possible edification when you gather. If we make that our goal, we will right most of the wrongs that come into the body as associated with spiritual gifts. If we simply make our goal edification, we can judge every moment on that basis and do pretty well most of the time. I can assess who should go before someone else. I can assess how much time to give to one gift over another. I can assess whether an activity should even take place or not. All of those things are settled largely on the question of whether there is good edification or whether better edification is possible through some other means. That should be our goal. Why do we spend roughly half of our main gathering here on Sundays listening to me drone on? Why is that part of our program? Nobody else has a better idea yet, right? Is that it? There is simply no better way to edify the church. Someone who goes to the Bible and opens it for us and examines it properly and gives us the proper interpretation of what it says, if that's happening, that's of tremendous edification. In fact, second only to apostolic gifts and prophetic gifts, Paul says that the third highest valued gift in the body is teaching. Why do we give so much time to it? Because it's just that powerful as an edifying tool. We should give a lot of preference to teaching, not just here, but anywhere we gather. But it's not the only gift on the list, so it won't be the only thing we do. But when we think of priorities and allotments of time and the like, it is appropriate that teaching have a very high place in our, our gathering. Paul isn't asking for us to take any of those gifts off the list. He's asking us to keep them all in their proper perspective. And therefore, since the gift of tongues has a very limited power to edify, Paul places some very severe restrictions on when and how it is used in the body. That's the next section. Look at verses 13 through 19. He says, therefore, meaning let us conclude now from what I have just said. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your gifting of thanks since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person's not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I might instruct others rather than 10,000 in tongues. Paul is making a comparison again, speaking from his first person perspective. He says, if a Christian possesses the gift of tongues and that person desires to come into the body and contribute with their gift for the purpose of edification, 
they are commanded by Paul to pray for the opportunity to interpret their own speech. Now, the fact that Paul says that the interpretation can be obtained through prayer in this manner demonstrates to us that interpretation is not a separate gift. Remember, we've already said you cannot obtain a gift that you weren't given in the first place. So the fact that it comes as a function of prayer tells us that the gift of tongues is a general category of gifting that includes potentially the ability to interpret. We see this earlier if you look back in chapter 12 when Paul's listing the gifts in their rank order. At the very end, he rank orders gifts of tongues and interpretations of tongues as a single category at the very end. So it is the ability to speak or to know other languages that is itself the gift, but it's also apparent from what Paul's just said that you might have the ability to speak, but yet not in every case have the ability to understand, whether your own speech or perhaps someone else's. There is apparently some variation in how God manifests this particular gift. And so Paul says it is possible to be moved by the Spirit to interpret someone else's tongue or to even interpret your own foreign tongue as the Spirit gives utterance. And so he makes that a condition. He says, look, you have a gift of tongues? Great. Glad to have you in the church. Please do your part. If you're going to speak, before you open your mouth, before you interrupt, before you contribute, be ready to make it edifying. And if God has not granted you the ability to interpret, you do not have that license from the Spirit, stay quiet. That doesn't make your gift invalid. It means that your ability to edify is to yourself alone. You can use that on your own time. Do it somewhere else. When you're in the gathering, the purpose is the gathering, not the individual. Find a way to make it valuable to the rest. If God permits you to interpret, then that is self-evident proof that God has chosen to make your gift useful in the moment, and you can go with it knowing he is working with it to edify the body. But if you don't have that, stay quiet. Paul says, he uses himself here as an example. He says, I speak in tongues. And he says, if I don't have the ability to interpret my own speech, then my spirit is engaged, but my mind is cut out of the loop. My mind doesn't even know what God is doing inside my own spirit. And as Gordon Fee said earlier in that quote that I gave you, there can be that edifying effect in the spirit without it necessarily transferring into our mind. So be it. But in verse 15, Paul says, what will be the outcome of that, though? In other words, isn't there a better alternative? Isn't there a better alternative to the use of the time in the body than having one person stand up and edify themselves in a way that nobody else can benefit from? And the obvious answer, the one he doesn't bother giving because it's obvious, is yes, there would be a better outcome. Better outcome is you stay quiet, let the teacher talk. Let the one with the gift of prophecy talk. Let someone else do what they can to benefit the body. Don't you hijack the moment for your own sake. It's just that simple. He prefers, he says, to pray in a way that both his mind and his spirit are engaged. He prefers to sing in a way that they're both engaged. In other words, he says, if he might pray or sing in a foreign tongue, he would prefer that that prayer or that song be in a recognizable language so that he could edify the body than that it not. He says, look, folks, I have the gift of tongues, but if I don't know how to interpret, I'm going to put that gift on the shelf and I'm just going to speak in Greek like everyone else. I'm just going to speak in my natural tongue and use it to do something edifying, praying, singing, rather than do something miraculous with a special foreign language that no one can understand. That's convicting for those who would always want to put their gift on the forefront of the attention of the body. Because he's saying, I'll go without the gift of tongues if that's better to make sure I communicate than to use the gift of tongues and get nowhere. 
That's the proper perspective. Notice in verse 16, Paul says that the effect of praying or singing in a common language is to trigger an amen from the others in the gathering. What he's saying is ministry happens in that moment when something goes from me to you, triggering in you an amen, so to speak. Whether you say it out loud or not, and we're not one of those churches that, at least by custom here, we don't do a lot of talking back. I've taught in churches where, amen, brothers, you preach it, amen. And I will tell you as a speaker, that's kind of fun. Yeah, there you go. I'm not saying I want it necessarily. It probably feeds a part of me that doesn't need to be fed. But, but Paul says the whole point of ministry is to elicit that response, whether it's just internal or whether it comes out naturally. The point is, when I say to you, the Bible says we should do this or don't do this, and a part of you says, Scripture's right. Ministry just happened in that moment. You just got something you needed. Your spirit was just edified. You were just lifted up. You were just moved in the direction of sanctification. You just became closer to Christ. Something good just happened. That's the purpose. Paul says, okay, so you're going to sing or you're going to pray and you're going to do it in a language and they don't have the ability to understand it, so there won't be that requisite amen. What good was it? He wants the amen. He wants the edification. It depends on the communication for that to happen. As an apostle, Paul possessed the gift, he said, but the choice of speaking 10,000 words in a tongue you don't understand or just saying five words in your natural language and teaching you something with those five words. He says, you know what, if I had to choose between those two, I'll take the five words every day. Because there's benefit. There's an amen at the end of that sentence. There's edification. Now, on the other hand, if I gave you 10,000 words of a language you don't know, oh, you'd be impressed. Your eyes would open up big. You'd sit there and go, did you see what Steve did today? Man, that was God. But that's not your spirit saying amen. It feels like it, but it's not. It's your flesh saying, man, that was cool. How do I get more of that? Maybe next week he'll call fire down from heaven. Maybe next week he'll dance and do something crazy. We got to come back. It's a show. I got to see this. I'm being a bit facetious, but not much because that's where it goes. When you feed the flesh, you want what Jesus talked about when he says they want signs and wonders. What Paul said, that Greeks want wisdom and Jews seek for a sign. That there's a fleshly component to each of us that wants to be excited and stimulated. And we want to see God. We want him to show up. We want a burning bush. And there's a reason why he does not give men burning bushes for the most part. Because it does not feed faith. It feeds sight. Does not feed the spirit, it feeds the flesh. Paul says, you give me two choices. I can feed your flesh with 10,000 special words or I can feed your spirit with five ordinary words. And I'll pick the ordinary. When we return next time, we'll be finishing this chapter. And as we finish it, Paul's going to instruct the church on how they restore the order that's missing in their service. The order that has now been given over to a deteriorated free-for-all in which anyone who could say anything was allowed. In which tongues became the the way in which you gained attention. In which you stole the limelight from whoever had it. In which you showed that you were, quote, spiritual. This is not a church that has a fascination with spiritual gifts in the sense that we don't invite the kind of displays that you sometimes see elsewhere. If you've been here longer than a week, you know that. But some of us may have an opportunity to venture into a church like that, whether because a friend invites us or because we move away and we try a new church and we find ourselves in an environment in which this kind of thing starts to happen. If you have that experience in a church where supposedly the gift of tongues is going on, 
I want you to remember this counsel. You've been fed now by the word of God to know what you need to know concerning this topic. Not that there isn't the potential for God to do these things. No one's saying that. What we're saying, though, is it comes in a certain form for a certain purpose, and it must be practiced in a certain way. When those things are absent, you're looking at something that's not of the spirit. Is the speech that you hear a true foreign language or is it babbling? If it's babbling, then it's not the result of the spirit. It's just the flesh being deceived into a mimicking behavior. Don't judge those people. Have compassion. Have a desire to seek them in the right way, to educate them as God allows, to be a witness to them of what can be the true and proper way to worship. Perhaps some of them do have the tongue and they do show it in the proper way. But I will tell you, I've been around the world. I've taught in a lot of different churches. And when I go in, I don't go in with the attitude that I'm going to fix them. That's not my role. I go in to do what I do everywhere. I'm just going to teach the Bible. The point being that our influence with each other is the same no matter what our stripe is. The point is to teach the Bible, let God work us through whatever blind spots we all have, and we all have some. And we'll all reach the same pinnacle of understanding in time. But don't be swayed because you seem to lack the one thing they all seem to have, such is the case sometimes. Stay grounded in the word and you'll be okay. Consider what you see. Know the Bible. And as the writer of Hebrews says, you'll be able to discern good from evil. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Father, this congregation has no more of a corner on the truth than any other group that come to you through your word. And we have our own flaws and we have our own mistakes. We have our own blind spots, Father, the things that we've set aside and have not embraced or the things we've overemphasized and not kept in their proper place. So we say in humility, Father, and in a humble recognition of the fact that we do have these flaws, we say thank you, Father, for correcting us on the topics of today. But we also ask, Father, that you would bring others to teach us on those things that we lack, even as we seek to help others in the body to know the things they should know. Don't let us be haughty. Don't let us be prideful, Father. Let us be humble. But by that same token, Father, let us stand firmly on the truth of what's in your word. Don't let us be afraid to stand up for the things that are true. And if we have in the past, Father, been one who may have been influenced to believe differently on these matters, I pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage to confront what we've read in a sincere way, to stand back from ourselves and from our history and from our friends, to be willing to admit that we may not have seen things properly in the past. Father, that we would rather be right, we'd rather know the truth than be right, that we would rather know the truth than be right. Give us that heart, Father, and I know you will show us so many things that we need to know. And Father, I do ask that if we go out today, we would go out in the Spirit, using our gifts, wherever you place us, and most of all here as we gather, so that we'd be strengthened for the work of ministry. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.